0: Sebastian said um, his father needed money for a saw and a lathe at a level so he could start a new business as a carpenter. He said he knew a man whose father had a tumor the size of a small grapefruit on his prostate. He said he needed money to take out the tumor in the prostate. Uh, this is the right thing to read, right? About it's the prostate perfect. tumor? It's the perfect okay. thing to read, yeah. Let me see this man, I said. Take me to see this man. We walked down into Sebastian's village. Don't be alarmed, Sebastian said, when you see their eyes. All the members of the family had a degenerative eye disease. They all went blind by age 25. My friend is 23, Sebastian said. You can see it already. The disease is eating his eyes. There were eight small children, two teenage girls, Sebastian's friend and his father and mother, both of whom were in their 70s. Sebastian's friend was a very late child. A miracle child, I said. A shame and a burden, Sebastian said. The teenage girls and the children were sons and daughters of sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters who had long since fled for the city. These were the unwanted children or the too many children or the children taken early by blindness. Sebastian's friend was working for tips at the Hotel Kinam to bring in money and tending the garden in the mornings. When he was gone, people stole from the garden. There was no one in the family able enough to do anything about it. We greeted Sebastian's friend. My friend, he said, my good friend, you will come see my father. He led us through a maze of banana trees past the hundred-year-old stone house to the unfinished concrete house at the back of the property. It had holes for windows and a hole where the roof would go. The old man sat shaking in a chair at the center of the one room. Piles of construction sand filled the four corners. The old man leaned on his cane and shook. He waved us near him and spoke. He had the breath of brown death. After he said half a sentence, he paused to catch his breath, and Sebastian translated, I saw you in a dream, he said. Banger sent you from America. Your journey took you over the sea. You are estranged from your mother. You are wearing glasses, and you have beautiful shoes. Most of these things were true. Bonje said, this man will come, he said. You will show him your wound. He will lay hands on your wound, and your wound will be healed. He pushed on his cane. With some effort, he sat upright in his chair. With his shaking hand, he handed the cane to his son. With great effort, he reached both hands to his pants button and the zipper. He said, I will show you. He unbuttoned his pants and he unfastened his zipper. With both hands, as if presenting a bouquet of flowers, he held himself out to us. What he showed was mostly tumor. His penis and his testicles had shriveled to a flaccid tininess. Most of his hair had fallen away. Only a slight smear of peach fuzz remained, and it was slick with a yellowish-white discharge from a separating wound that was on the tumor but not of the tumor. Bondier said, the old man said again, this man will come, you will show him your wound, he will lay hands on your wound, and your wound will be healed. Everyone was looking at me. Sebastian with his good eyes, the man's son with his cataracting failing eyes, the old man with his blind eyes. Even the tumor seemed like a giant dying eye. The man's son was nodding as if to say, go ahead. Sebastian was watching as if to see what kind of man I was after all our time together. I held out my hands. I cupped them as if I were preparing to draw water from the river. I put them on either side of the tumor. My right wrist grazed the old man's tiny penis, and my left wrist grazed his testicles. The skin swollen by the tumor was hot, and the skin covering the genitals was as cold as a slab at the morgue. You must pray, the son said. Our Father who art in heaven, I said. It wasn't a prayer to the sky, it was a prayer to the people in the room. If there was any belief to borrow, it was all theirs. Then I couldn't remember the rest of the words to the prayer, even though it was the most famous prayer in the world. In my mind, it had become conflated with a less famous poem by an American who had once been my teacher at the university. Our Father, who art in heaven, I am drunk. (laughs) Again, red wine, for which I offer thanks. I ought to start with praise, but praise comes hard to me. I stutter. I had not memorized the whole poem but I did remember the ending the beautiful ending the drunk praying thinks of himself as an old-time cartoon character a poor jerk who wanders out on air and then looks down below his feet he sees eternity and suddenly his shoes no longer work on nothingness and down he goes the drunk prays as I fall past remember me It seemed as fitting a prayer as the one I had forgotten. I cobbled together bits and pieces of both and drew on the language of special pleading I remembered from all those dreary years at the Baptist church. I used the words separating and grapefruit and hot and cold and shrivel and shrink. When I was done, nothing happened. Everyone was as blind or cataracted or tumored or lying or despicable as we had been before we prayed, and my hands were wet with white and yellow pus. I told the old man I was sorry. Nothing happened. He had not been healed. I must not be the man Bondier had sent from over the sea. He said, We must wait. Bondier's time is not our time. Outside, I asked Sebastian, How much is the surgery? Sebastian said, All surgeries are $300. I said, I have $400 in my pocket, I'm going to give it all to him. Sebastian said, if you give him $400 for his surgery, they will use it to buy sand in Portland, or they will use it to buy a window, or they'll use it to buy corrugated aluminum for a roof. The old man will die soon, no matter what you do. What can I do, I said. You can give the money to me, Sebastian said. I will take it to pay the doctor, and I will pay the tap tap to take him to the doctor. I looked at him and I knew, He would take the money and put it in his pocket and I would never see him again. Or I would see him again the next time he wanted some money. No, I said. No. I put the money back in my pocket and vowed to return after we did the count in Mirabalai in three weeks. Pick up the old man myself, take him to the hospital myself, pay for the surgery myself. In later years a woman told me, who do you think you are to play God? I said, I only wanted to save this one man for a little while. I knew he was going to die soon. Three weeks passed, we returned to the village. Another casket, a cheap one, was marching up the street. So many of the pulp bears were blind. Don't worry, Sebastian said. You took his tumor in your hands. But I didn't cut it out, I said. You should have given me the money, he said.
2: Thanks, that was really good.
0: Yeah, that ruined everybody's day.
2: <sighs> no, it was good, it was good. I have a heart because the things I'm writing lately are pretty gross. Do you find that it's hard that you write a lot of gross things at once and then you have to read them out in public?
0: Yeah. 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 Well, it's because the world is full of gross things, right. you know? I mean, even like if we just all went and took off our clothes yeah. and compared ourselves to each other,
2: that'd be kind of gross. Yeah.
0: We'd see some things.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you can not unsee them. Um, Do you guys want to? Yeah, maybe later. There's children. There's children here. <coughs> so can you talk about the process of, uh, of writing, writing that piece in particular briefly, like how long it took and maybe what, w- like how quickly or slowly you wrote it, how much you edited or how little or, you know.
0: Well, it, it took, uh, I went down to Haiti for five summers and um, that's all I came away with at first, um, just a, one short story. Yeah. I, was, um, I was trying to write poems and uh, they were terrible. And then I put them all together and, start, and then I started to see they were all about the same thing. Which is, um, I'd often spend the summer just walking up and down mountains with people that at first I didn't know well. And the primary reason that they walked with me was to try to get money from me. Mm. And then, but then we'd become friends and then they would give me money but then I wouldn't know what to do with that either. <laughs>
2: with the fact or with the money? With,
0: with everything, okay. because um, the, this, the, the, the imbalance of everything was so uh, apparent all the time, and, and you're starting to love people at the same time, and, um, and you don't know what to do, and you can leave whenever you want, and the people that you care about can't leave, and, uh, and sometimes you, you would come back and some of them would be dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, 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 that story kind of came out of that. Process. Mm.
2: Hmm. Uh, you got a lot of nonfiction out of that time, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I I originally went down to work on a screenplay about a um, about a arrestivek, which is a it's a word that means stay with. It's um it's like a system of domestic uh, servitude for children in Haiti, a traditional system where parents from the mountains that have like twelve kids might send four of the kids to. A relatively more well-off person's house in the city to do like gardening or or household chores in exchange for education, but it never works out very well. And you see a lot of kids get turned out to prostitution or um, gardening for some reason. Mm. And uh, so, so I was I was I was really kind of gung ho about that project. But also, in order to get into it, I was reading a lot of Haitian history and literature, and it was. Uh, the is a really, like, literary history, like, there's the the only slave revolution that ever took, and then uh, the, the, one of the rallying cries of the Constitution is, um, we'll dip our quills in the inkwell of the skull filled with the blood of the white man, you know, uh, yeah. which is pretty great. It's pretty
2: hardcore, yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, unless if it's your skull. Right. And, uh, and so, um, and, and 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 also a shadow history of the United States, right? I mean, the reason f- that Thomas Jefferson was able to um, get the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon was because the Haitians had turned away against all odds Napoleon's navy, and he kind of gave up on the New World, and then disastrously marched on on Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's f- full full of those kind of things, and 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 a concurrently like very very rich literature. So so I was excited, and then um, I found out as you will often find out if you do any kind of screenwriting work that everybody just lies to you all the time. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: And it turns out that the director had never secured the option of the project that I worked on ah, for nine shit. months. Right? So, but I just went down anyway. Uh, I found somebody who knew somebody and flew into Port-au-Prince when, with the ticket that I had. Uh, found myself riding a, a truck up a mountain to a, a village, an agricultural village in the West Province. Never been f- before, and I slept outside the first night, you know, um, began to meet people, and then I just kept going back and uh, fell in love with, with the place. So it's kind of an accident.
2: Mm. So what do you find that, that fiction can do that nonfiction can't do, or vice versa, or and you can you can add screenwriting into that if you feel like it?
0: Well, I think it's a lot easier to tell the truth if you're writing fiction, because mm. you aren't exposed to libel. You know suits and um, and also because uh, what a story is is not like a collection of events or facts. It's like a a human being that's chasing some kind of question, like what was all that? You know, I mean, not all kinds of stories, but but one kind of story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and 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 if if you're chasing that question and you have the freedom to invent things that bolster the pursuit of that. Uh, in addition to sort of the, the germ of the thing um, it's easier to get there I think with non-fiction it's a lot you can get away with being glib a lot more easily and mm-hmm. in fact sometimes that's the job mm-hmm. um, uh, sometimes the place that you write for doesn't really want you to be terribly incisive
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so the freedom is not is not often the same mm-hmm. and then also um, the very best non-fiction writers are often as good or better than uh, you know, many of the best fiction writers, but there's, I think there's a lot more fiction writers and poets that can really bring it in terms of language and sentence making and, and things in ways that, that appeal to me more. I
2: find- that uh that nonfiction writing is sort of like being a scientist more than being a fiction writer. Like you have to have a hypothesis and you go in and you can kind of test it or and it's proven or disproven. Like I interviewed Selena Gomez and I thought it was gonna be a certain kind of thing, and then maybe it would go in this direction, and then it had it forced itself into this other direction. And I'm a pretty bad nonfiction writer <laughs> and a pretty bad scientist, I imagine, because I really wanted to push it in that other direction. Well,
0: well, and you're also limited by how much access you have to Selena Gomez, right? And, and and right, and that's where the fiction writer is, is lucky because they can just, because you can you you have certain impressions, right? Mm-hmm. You can say there's a dis- there seems to be distance between the story that the person is tell, to- that, that, that this person is telling me about their life and the thing that seems to be readily apparent, but I have no way to to really get into. Um, but I mean, that's not you know, that's kind of bullshit too. Everything I just said, yeah, because forget it because because uh, you you do have all the full resources of your intelligence when you write nonfiction I mean um, it's just harder it takes more time it's very and hard, yeah. and, uh, and it's more work to get to the deepening place I think
2: huh okay, yeah, I'm trying to sort it out yeah, yeah. Uh, There's like
0: uh, really good nonfiction writers in the audience, not so I'm feeling who. very nervous now.
2: <laughs> There's actually a lot of writers in the audience, and I've just tried to forget that they're there at all, yeah. so I don't get super nervous. Uh, but there are good screenwriters and short fiction writers and long fiction and nonfiction, so it's just everything. And they're all staring at us. It's okay. It's okay uh no you so so you, you write about uh, Florida and you write about Haiti and you write about Kentucky and these are all places that you know pretty well in your real life um, I'm wondering if you ever write fiction about places that you that you don't know at all
0: yeah I I uh, I'm working on a I went down to Huntsville Texas uh, a few weeks ago down to the um, Texas State Penitentiary. Oh, yeah. Which is um, where more people were executed than anywhere else in the United States. And uh, I got these, like, uh, big picture books. They're amazing. uh, These two photographers got to be friends with the warden, and they got full access for about 20 years. Into the prison. And there's no text to them. And uh, so there's pictures from... Inside cells from the prison rodeo. There's a picture. That I think they arrested, they busted David Crosby for drugs just so they get to play guitar at the prison rodeo. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's that. Um, and uh, chain gang pictures. And uh, I feel like maybe now I know enough about what I'm doing to 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 write out of that little mm. um, and, and know some things.
1: But so I want to. But I want to know some things, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: are, I I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily... Even the surreal things in this book, um, which are sort of supernatural, are out of just, like, the fucked upness of my childhood. You know, mm-hmm. these, uh, these traveling preachers used to come to town and they'd, like, play Beatles records backwards, like they'd say uh, Tomorrow Never Knows backwards, and they would say, he is the nasty one, Christ, you're infernal. You know, it was very scary because yeah. there was a demon inside the record. Yeah. Um, they would say, if we went to see uh, the movie Gremlins, that the, that the gremlins would... Um, get inside the skin of our arms and then while we slept they would claw out you know and I was very concerned about my arms for a long time or if the sky turned red when I lived in Florida so the sky turned red every day so it was very scary uh you look to the eastern sky and Christ would be arriving on a white horse with this time with a sword and uh the graves would rip open and all the all the dead righteous would rise and and but they wouldn't get their um they're good They're like heavenly bodies yet, so it'd be a corpse army for a while, yeah, and then um, if you didn't get to go with them, you'd be stuck behind for seven years, and then like the local sheriff. Would chase you and UN you helicopters through the mountains, <laughs> and um, and then you'd have to and then they put you under the, gui- the guillotine. Yeah. When I was five years old on New Year's Eve, I remember this. <laughs> they, they they showed us this movie on New Year's Eve after we had the pollock dinner with like the banana pudding and uh. stuff, and the fireworks, yeah. and then they showed us this uh, this movie. And after the UN helicopters chased everybody through the mountains, this girl's head got under the guillotine, and then the blade fell, and then it free. It, she started screaming, and the freeze frame stopped. The guillotine, like this far from from her neck, but the screaming went on for like 90 more seconds, you know. And then and then just black for 90 more seconds, and then the lights came on, and then the preacher came up and he said, "Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you walked out the front door of this church, because the church was right on the main highway, that if you walked out the front door of this church and a semi ran you over, that you would you would spend eternity with God or in the lake of fire, you know?" Then he described the lake of fire for like 45 minutes, yeah. you know. And then everybody and then everybody gave him money. <laughs> and 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 so 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 I was thinking about that and mm-hmm. I was thinking about I have all these stories some of which are competing versions of one another and some of which are only connected thematically. But I was thinking about what happened after that, which is the great white throne judgment, which goes like this. Mm. It's a stadium the size of the whole world, but but bigger, because it has to hold everybody who's ever been alive or dead. Mm. And the largest 16 millimeter film projector ever made, which is weird, because they had 70 millimeter anamorphic, (laughs) you know, like apocalypse now, yeah, yeah. technology, then, but it was like a low rent church. Sure. And then they would show like everything you ever did wrong, all your evil deeds. Even your thoughts. And at seven years old, I thought my thoughts were incredibly transgressive. Oh God! But they're different now. As I, as I think about it, they're worse. But then, as, as I got older, I thought, well, maybe not such a big deal. After you see Genghis Khan's hordes, like rape and kill everyone. In you know, like at Asia and Europe and stuff, so and then if you pass that test, then Uh the sheep are divided from the goats. Now, up until now, everything's been literal, but this is a metaphor. This is okay. You don't actually turn into a sheep or a goat, you just that's that means the good, the people that go to heaven and the people with the Uh, lake of fire. Okay, Okay, gotcha. So, if you're one of the sheep, you go to heaven, but then you have to sing the same shitty songs that you had to sing at church once you're in heaven forever. Oh my yeah, God. and they give you crowns for the good things you do, but you don't get to keep them. You got to throw them at, at the foot of the throne. Wow. So I got to thinking they'll be terrible, yeah. right? Because everything good in the world turns out to be attached to some kind of trouble. So I figured I'd just be stuck in some kind of like study carol in the back of heaven, like next to Joyce Carol Oates, you know, just grinding <laughs> it out, like, like back in the good old bad days when the things were still possible. Yeah. And, and then I realized that's, I have a book. That's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> this is all. This is all the, This
2: is uh, narrated from heaven. <laughs> uh, what do you think about that, Emerson? Don't you feel, I'm a father. Don't you feel sorry for my children? No, no. I feel. I feel glad for everyone's children in the whole world.
0: Me too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, what do you think about that Emerson quote? God will not have his work made manifest by cowards.
0: Well, that seems like bullshit to me. Why? Well. Because, if there is a God,
2: mm.
0: he sort of set everything up uh, to stack the deck against everybody, you know? Like, and then, and then life proceeds as an atrocity parade, and he lets it happen. He's, the, I mean, he's the big coward, and then he empowers all the cowards to go speak in his name or something. I mean, I know that has nothing to do with what a- Emerson's quote
2: actually means. Right, 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 right. Well, fine though, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think about oh oh! I wanted to ask you actually about, about uh, a weird obsessive thing you, you do or used to do <laughs> this is an intervention uh, so, so one thing that you do is that you read the entire catalog of writers that you admire um, and so you've read you've read the entire catalog of Delillo, of Toni Morrison, William Faulkner, Alice Munro, John McPhee, Philip Roth, John Updike, Flannery O'Connor, Katherine Ann Porter, uh, Eudora Welty, uh, Milan Kundera, uh, Cormac McCarthy, and Cynthia Ozick. That's a lot. Um, how does uh, how does it feel? Do you still do that?
0: No. No. Now I watch TV.
2: Cool. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> no. Um, so I'm. I'm going to assume you see you see your your work in conversation with those writers. And you see you yourself as kind of coming in in different parts of their, their their, uh, catalogs, which are sometimes in progress, sometimes completed.
0: Well, I mean, w- one thing I learned by doing that. I mean, I did that when I was younger, and I was just very hungry. You mm. know, and and also because I felt very inadequate to be a writer. I mean, I didn't start reading any literature till I was like 24. I studied to be a preacher, and. Um, and and I came from a from people that have really no literary or intellectual tradition to speak of at all, I, um, because you know f- f- fundamentalism it works like this intellectually. There's an answer that preexists the question, and and everything is reduced to that answer. Whereas um, what literature does, and, and any, any kind of really good intellectual pursuit is it complicates, it raises more questions, and. Um, and the place that you end up may not even be a place that you would have wanted to, to end up when you start asking the question. And so I guess I was trying to rewire my brain. And, and, and so I, I got two things, I got three things out of it. The first thing is um, I learned how to make sentences and I learned some things about structure and I learned some things about how stories can go together and, which turned out to be a good thing when I went to graduate school where I had a lot of teachers that wanted to shoehorn you into some kind of box. For me, having read all those books was a pathway to some freedom because I realized literature could can, can be anything, you know. Um, or like I like what, the way Zadie Smith said, literature's a big tent. There's room under it for all kinds of acts. Um, the second thing, I don't know, I don't have my counting right. I said three. Um, <laughs> The other thing is, um, I got a sense of the trajectory of careers. You know, very often a writer would start out with childhood stuff and, and get a book of short stories out of it, or a novel, mm-hmm. a really intense one, and then have to learn what to do next. And the next step was usually the imitation of some kind of supposed master. Like for writers of a certain generation, it was Henry James, mm. who I don't ever want to have to read ever for the rest of my <laughs> life. You You've know? read
2: him already. No, Enough of
0: him. Not all of him because I. Him. Because not even the whole book can I get through. Energy. He's a so, he's
2: a tough one. Yeah, but but then he's the, the human scene, right? That? We're all in a home, uh, like a house, looking on the human scene. Different size windows and stuff.
0: Yeah, I didn't get that far. That's I mean, good. Okay. Yeah, but the, but then but you know then like the then like the really good stuff is often like when the writer pushes through that and starts to make something singular, you know. And so I thought I I want to do that, like mm-hmm. I want to make something that only I could make and no one else could make it, mm-hmm. and. And then that's when I started to, to realize maybe there was some value in um, the, the world that I had come from, which really wasn't represented at all in any of the good books that I, w- that I was reading. Um, and now I'm sick of that world, and I want to do something else.
2: So what next? Well, I'm finishing a novel yeah.
0: uh, set in Haiti called The Sexual Lives of Missionaries, mm-hmm. um, and it's about... Um, it's sort of the, the, pub- the public version of the personal... Work that, that I've been doing. It's set during the Dutrouxage uprising when uh, Baby Doc uh, Duvalier fell from power. That word means uprooting, and it was a literal uprooting. I mean, people would go not just tear down the house, but pull up the plumbing and dig up the dead relatives and throw them in the street. You know, wow. so it's from that time. Yeah. Um, and I actually met a lot of people, you know, in, in Haiti who were alive during that time. In fact, some of the makuts, uh the Tantans Makut that were. were um, like the, the shadow army beholden to the Duvalier is still alive. People are, are walking around, you know, um, you, you might know them. Uh, they're somebody's uncle or something. And after you go around a while they might start to tell you the, sto- the stories. It's amazing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the United States has a public history like that as well, but it's not it's not in the street. And to get, to get access to that world in that way tells me a lot about how the world is. Um, and of course all of that was propped up by us as well. So so, so I've been working on that for about seven years. Yeah. And then uh, I'm, st- I'm trying to get into a little bit of TV writing and screenwriting mm-hmm. and uh, enjoying the, 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 the first little pieces of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I saw you on uh, on Facebook. You were calling for for people to suggest uh, screenplays and longer works for you to read. Yeah, I mean, you were, this was when a while I was starting, ago. Yeah, this was a couple years ago. Yeah, I read
0: uh, I read about a hundred screenplays and about uh, about fifty uh, pilots and I, as many show bibles as I could this summer when I was yeah working on a a a, a pilot and that uh, was great. Yeah, it's so much more fun than prose writing. Sure.
2: Yeah. Uh, what, so what else what did it teach you doing all that that work? Um, it it, ta- it taught me
0: well, you know, um you don't get interiority very much yeah, when yeah. you're writing for in, in this kind of forms. So um, th- it was the opposite of everything that I'd been doing, and uh, it was tremendously liberating, you know. Um, and and I started to realize how much, how fast things can move, and how much you can do uh, just by juxtaposition and cutting things out. Mm-hmm. How much ground you can cover, mm-hmm. and uh, I found it tremendously exciting.
2: Yeah. good, very good. Yeah, uh, I think. I think I'd like to open it up to the crowd a little bit. Um, if you guys have, have some questions about, about anything that we talked about or, or anything that has occurred to you remotely. Uh, yeah, J. Rang.
0: Uh, you said you first started seriously pursuing literature. <coughs> Who was the author? Of, or, or Kurt, of Kurt Vonnegut was the, like, the gateway drug. He I was the marijuana too. of literature yeah. for me.
2: What's your favorite?
0: Uh well, Slaughterhouse Five is the great book. I mm-hmm. I really love this book called Breakfast of Champions. Yeah, that's a good that, one. That that Vonnegut himself gave an F. He graded all his <laughs> he books. He hated that book. Yeah,
2: but he I drew the assholes in that one. Yeah,
0: but I think it's the book about him wanting to commit suicide yeah. too. This this it comes from a dark time. Yeah. So, but tells me more about me than about him. That's my favorite. That
2: you? Yeah, that's a yeah. weird book.
0: I'll tell you the story of that though. Uh, so I I had quit two careers. I was homeless. And I started dating a woman who was also homeless. Mm-hmm. And she, then she got a place, but she, sta- she used to be a college professor. She shared it with a former student. It was a 80 square foot uh, octagon shaped house that a woman had built to house her doll collection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, it, and it, uh, there was a, a fold out, it wasn't a sofa because there weren't enough cushions. It was like a love seat sure. sofa. Sure. So that two and they slept on that together and I slept out in the yard in my car for a while i'm not i'm not proud of this but really? this is the truth and uh, then during the day i didn't have anything to do because i thought i'd make it as a freelance writer but i, was, I didn't have a lot of work yeah so um but the, but the other woman that lived there had a shelf of Kurt Vonnegut books, all of them, and they were arranged in chronological order, so I started with player piano. That's when I started doing that. And then when I got done, I heard that there was a writer named Don DeLillo who was just like Kurt Vonnegut, which turns out not to be true at all, right? It's like couldn't be any more different. Yeah. So I read all those, and, and I sort of ass backwards my way through <laughs> yeah. 20th century American literature that way in about three years. And That's awesome. Yeah.
2: why did you guys break up though?
0: No, we got married.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs>
0: we have children. We're still together. Okay. But she's not homeless anymore.
2: Oh, great, great. I, I helped. <laughs> I did it. Good. Other, other cues? How do you two know each other? How do we know each other? I, I I don't know. We met at a party. Yeah, we met at a party in Denver, right? Right.
0: And you told me you liked my story, so I loved you forever. Yeah. My robot story. Yeah, right? that's right. And then uh and then I, I got sent your book to review. Which one? Museum of the Weird. Oh, okay. And uh then I didn't review it. I just wrote a bunch of shit about <laughs> what I thought.
2: Uh huh.
0: But you like you seemed to like that. I okay. I did Like
2: that. Well, I did like that a lot. Yeah. yeah.
0: So that's how we met.
2: Yeah. I think we've only really had. And then out. we have we just have
0: awkward. Super awkward. Like there was the time minutes. with all the condoms falling out of the pocket.
2: <laughs> I we we should not t- tell people about. No, them. that's a terrible story. Any <laughs> other questions? First. <for> <laughs> Do you guys want to hear about that story? No. Cool. Uh, well, <laughs> that's. All right. Maybe last one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, what from reading like catalog of a writer? I'm just curious. Who's, who's, who's who? Uh, what writers do you feel you know, like most sort of held by their evolution
0: or their change or their- well i have an un- i have an unpopular answer to that question which is which is philip roth who's probably the most vilified writer in america besides jonathan franzen yeah um, but but uh, and also who wrote a lot of really terrible books but um, something happened in like the middle to late 80s he like grew up or something and he went on a tear and he wrote a bunch of really great books, uh, one after the other, that formally were not like anything he'd done before, and from which I learned really quite a lot. So, but I wouldn't recommend reading all his books. I recommend reading him from like nineteen eighty-five to like nineteen ninety-eight or something. Okay.
2: That's good. Thank you,
0: guys. Thank you. For yeah, coming thanks, out.
2: guys. Thank you.